Genesis 2, verses 15 through 20, Marriage and Man. God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help me for him. We have begun the study of the Seventh Commandment, the meaning of marriage and the meaning of the violation of the laws of marriage. And first of all, we have been considering marriage, this week marriage in man, then marriage in woman, and so on, and then to the laws regulated. According to Scripture, man can only be understood in terms of God and his sovereign purpose in man's creation. And according to Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, God created man in his own image, that is, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion. And he created him to exercise dominion over the earth and to subdue it. The commandment, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, is an aspect of man's call to exercise dominion over the earth. Man thus is to be understood in terms of God's kingdom. Man is called to manifest God's law order over a progressively developed and subdued earth. Man is thus a religious creature. Man can only be understood properly by reference to his calling, his creation. Adam's calling and man's calling thus had two aspects. Both can be summed up in terms of work. The first, the practical aspect, the care of eating, dressing, and caring for it. Dressing means killing. Even in paradise, the trees needed pruning, they needed care, they needed killing, the vegetables needed attention, so there was work in paradise. Second, there was the cognitive aspect, or knowledge. Adam was called by God to name the creatures, as we have pointed out previously, in the Bible, in particular in the Old Testament, to name means to classify, to understand, to describe, so that this was a scientific, a cognitive calling. By work and knowledge, man was called to subdue the earth and to develop it. Man was required to extend his dominion geographically as well as in knowledge by increasing and multiplying. Man's calling, therefore, can be termed work, both practical, down-to-earth work and knowledge. Both can be summed up as work. Any vocation, therefore, whereby man extends his dominion under God and to God's purpose, and develops the earth and subdues it, is a holy calling, a godly vocation. It is extremely wrong. It is anti-biblical 
to speak of a holy calling as the ministry or the priesthood, as is commonly done in both Protestant and Catholic churches. This is a violation of Scripture. Every calling whereby man works to extend his dominion over the natural world and to subdue it and to develop it under God is a holy calling. Thus, any area of production, whether it be the retailing end or the producing end, is a holy calling when exercised under God. Moreover, according to Scripture, man was created not as a child, but as a mature man in terms of mature responsibility. Therefore, according to biblical psychology, man is not to be understood by reference to child psychology or animal psychology, but with reference to mature responsibility. As a result, Whenever a man is interpreted in terms of anything other than mature responsibility, that psychology is destructive of man. Again, there is a radical destructiveness to any meaningless or frustrating work. Since man was created to assume responsibility in terms of work, in any social order, which penalizes work, as our social order does, and rewards the drone, has therefore a destructive effect, a penalizing effect on the working, the knowing man. Now as we analyze our scripture, certain things appear. Man was required to know himself first in terms of his calling before he was given his help to eat. Adam worked for an undefined but a very long period of time first. After all, even a rough and a general classification of the natural world takes time. So Adam was very obviously a bachelor for some years. Now, as we analyze the significance of this passage, we find that first of all, Adam was given Eve, not in fulfillment of a natural or simply sexual need, although this is recognized in our text, but after delay, in fulfillment of his need for a helpmeet in terms of his thought, a helper to him in his life and work under God as God's covenant man. Thus, second, it means that the role of the woman is to be a helper in man's governmental function, that is, to exercise dominion. Man's calling is the kingdom of God, to exercise dominion over the earth under God. And woman's creation and calling is in terms of it also to be man's helper in this function. Third, God only created Eve and gave her to man, to Adam, after Adam had proved himself responsible by discharging his duties safely and well for some period of time. As a result, it makes clear that responsibility is a prerequisite to marriage for man. This is why later on the dowry system came into being. A man had to accumulate a dowry roughly equivalent to three years labor, a capital, which he presented to the bride as the dowry to establish the marriage and give her security in the event that something happened to him in the future. Fourth, the family is a central aspect of man's dominion. It is there that he exercises his authority and his teaching function to bring about the covenant family as a central aspect of the kingdom of God. Fifth, marriage thus is clearly of divine ordination and was instituted together with man's calling to work and to know 
in paradise. Six, marriage is the normal state for man. God declared it is not good that the man should be alone. And Jesus Christ declared in Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12, that marriage was the responsibility of all mature men unless they were physically incapacitated or had a calling to remain single. Seventh, we must say that while the family is a part of man's calling, it is not its totality. Whereas the woman's calling is in terms of her husband and family, but a man in terms of his work under God. Eighth, before marriage, man had to show two things, the pattern of obedience to God and the pattern of responsibility. And therefore, marriage involves a break. Therefore, says verse 24, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. There is change which is necessary for progress and for growth. He breaks to the old home, not breaking as far as love and affection is concerned, but he establishes a new area of authority. This makes for development and progress. Ninth, it is interesting to examine the Hebrew word for bridegroom. It means the circumcised. And for mother-in-law and father-in-law, he or she who circumcised. Now, of course, this does not refer to the literal operation because all Hebrew males, according to the law, were circumcised after birth on the eighth what it does refer to is a spiritual fact. That is, the mother-in-law and the father-in-law were the ones who circumcised in that they checked thoroughly into the young man to make sure that he was spiritually of the covenant, that he was a mature, a responsible person, a believing man. And hence, they were called the circumcisers in that they checked on the reality of his profession, of his faith. And hence, we have here the beginning of the principle of no mixed marriages. Marriage is thus closely linked with the covenant, with faith. The Catholic marriage service concludes with a blessing after the marriage mass which invokes the Old Testament covenant formula and I think is very beautiful and fitting for the marriage service. And it reads, May the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob be with you. May he fulfill in you his blessing so that you may see your children's children to the third and fourth generation and afterward possess everlasting and boundless life. Through the help of our Lord Jesus Christ, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns God forever and ever. Finally, marriage is the ordained sexual relationship between man and woman, but, as our scripture makes clear, marriage cannot be understood simply in terms of sex. When marriage is reduced to sex, marriage disintegrates and amoral sex replaces it. Marriage is all things else must be understood in terms of God. And man especially is to be understood in terms of God and God's calling to work or to work in knowledge. Wherever there is frustration in terms of man's calling, the result is poor health for man physically, mentally, and sexually. He no longer has the ability to rest. It is of interest when you talk to very old men who worked in their day years ago 10 and 12 hours a day. But they had no trouble in those days when it came to resting. They relaxed readily and easily when they were through working and they slept well. 
Why? Because in those days before World War I, it was an age when man had a sense of optimism, a belief in progress. The world was moving forward. God's dominion was being extended everywhere. And so in this confidence, they felt a satisfaction in their work, and they could rest when they put down their work. But any dislocation in man's calling is a dislocation of his total life. Because man cannot be reduced to anything other than that to which God called him. And just as marriage cannot be reduced to sex nor to love, however important these are, but must be understood in terms of God's law as the essential bond, so man cannot be understood in terms of himself or of his love for his wife or anything other than God's calling. And the thing that is prior to a man in his life is not his wife nor his children, but work. This is of God's creation. And this is the tragedy of an apostate age when man's work no longer has meaning. The women can see clearly the futility in what man is doing. But too often, man's reaction as things are futile around him is to work all the harder. And when it is carried to the nth degree, work becomes a substitute in man's life for religion. Work is his way of accomplishing things. This is a God's doing. But when work becomes futile, men tend to work harder to try somehow to undo it. It is man's answer to all his problems, his way to dominion, his way to problem solving. And so men are unable to rest in an age when work has no meaning. And women become aware of the futility of work, but men are unwilling to admit it. It is their life. And so this is one of the tragedies of an apostate age, what it does to men. Work is no longer an answer since the world of work has moved out from under God. Long ago, Dostoevsky, as he described his experiences in Siberia about a century and a quarter ago, said that it was not hard labor which destroyed the conflict. In fact, the hard labor could be very healthy. Were they building a fort or a building? Or they could be worked from sunup until sundown. And they could get strong and healthy doing that work, no matter how much they were driven, as long as they were fed that. But, if the guards wanted to destroy the men, all they needed to do was to set them to useless work, moving a pile of boulders from one side of the prison yard to the other, and then back again. And no matter how slowly the men worked, the meaninglessness of it shattered the men in a very short time. It broke them completely. And this is what meaningless work does. And of course, this is what socialism does, because it progressively renders men meaningless. Because there is no dominion in work apart from God and his law order, apart from meaning. One of the things that characterized the Industrial Revolution, of course, was the development of factories. And one of the interesting and rather touching sidelights of that revolution was the jarring effect on men. Why? After a while, they got adjusted to it and they had a greater sense of dominion because they could produce more. But it destroyed the factory in the home, the workshop in the home. And this is hard on men. 
There was a delight that men had, and still have in some parts of the world, of having their tools under their roof. And if you go today to certain parts of Europe, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, or Scotland, into the country areas, uh, the men have a special pride in having their tools under their roof with them because they identify so strongly with their tools. I was interested last night when we were at a welcome home party for a doctor who was just been to Europe. And what did he do when he left for Europe for his vacation? He took his little black bag with him in spite of all the teasing. And the high point of the trip for him was he had a chance to use that little black bag. This is how strongly a man identifies with his work. And this is why it is so necessary that a man's work be firmly under God. Because work under God is man's right, and man is best understood in terms of it. Therefore, in our days, the tragedy is that both men and work have moved out from under God with a shattering effect upon society and upon marriage. There is no hope for society unless society again is under God. Then men again will find themselves and their marriages and their work will show forth the glory there is in man's life when it is under God. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us to know ourselves in terms of thee and of thy call, to find our place in thy law order, and to exercise dominion under thee, to extend thy kingdom from pole to pole, to subdue and develop the earth according to thy work. And we pray, our Father, that thou wouldst enable us by thy grace to summon men and nations again to thy word and to thy law order, that the kingdoms of this world might become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Bless us to this purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our lesson. Yes. times the engagement was the real service. The engagement in biblical times was the getting together of the young man and very often his parents with the parents of the bride-to-be. And at that time, the terms of the marriage were settled. First, they examined him thoroughly as to his faith and character. And, of course, usually they knew a great deal about him. It was a stable society. But nonetheless, they satisfied themselves on that point. And then the next point, the dower. Uh, if he did not have it, which was often the case, well, when would he have it? Then it was settled. They were man and wife, even though they didn't live together, say, for a year or two years or three, until he accumulated the dowry. But it was a contract and a divorce was necessary if that were broken. So while they never lived together, the engagement was the marriage ceremony. Now, what? Well, a Levite usually came in and ratified it, yes. And there was a great deal of uh, 
ceremony in the way of banqueting. Then, later, with the actual wedding, there would be a big feast. But the actual service was at the engagement. Now, in the uh, Christian church, this system carried over for a long time, and it's only broken down gradually in recent centuries, although in medieval Europe, the whole thing became paganized, and it was the bride's parents who gave the dowry to the young man, which perverted and destroyed the whole thing, in which case, which still prevails in Europe, the young man went shopping around for the uh, girl who had the most money, which destroyed the whole purpose of the biblical system, which was that the man had to prove himself responsible. The In the Christian uh, service, it was basically a religious service. It was between the families and it was in the church. The civil aspect, a civil contract, came in uh, a couple of centuries ago. So now it is a three-way contract. It is a personal contract rather than a family contract. It is a religious contract, and it is a uh, civil contract. And this is what the vows are about. Uh, When the couple takes the vows, uh, they're ratifying a contract. First, they go to the county clerk's office and they get a contract which is filed with the contract to the county. So that's the contract with the state, a civil contract that the two enter in together with the state. Because the state has a stake in stable and secure homes. Second, they take the vows to God. The first vow in the ceremony is taken to God. That's the religious contract. The third, the personal, I, John, take thee, Mary, uh, with one another. Is that answer? Yes. Another question. Well, we'll come to that next week when we deal with Eve, but I, I, I'll just say this, uh, don't be too hard on Eve, because after all, Adam was still in charge, and he chose to go along. So, uh, we can't pass the buck there. This is exactly, of course, what Adam and Eve did. When Adam was confronted by God, he said, not my fault, the woman whom thou gave us to be with me, it's your fault, you gave her to me, did give me and I did eat. And, of course, he didn't uh, take the responsibility either. This was, of course, the product of their sin. That is myth, pure myth. Lilith was supposedly another woman who was there in uh, Eden, where she came from, they don't say, unless Satan uh, created her. But that was a part of the mythology that crept up in the uh, Middle Ages. And uh, there was a lot of uh, humor connected with it, so we shouldn't take it too seriously that they really believed in it. Uh, they did invent a lot of stories in humor that are now taken as though they actually believed a lot of things. But you know the story, of course, of uh, Adam and Eve, uh, that he came home late one night and she said, who have you been with? And he said, well, who is there to be with? Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. We'll touch on that next week also. Yes. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, this is an old, old custom. There had to be uh, the bands published, that is, an announcement of marriage. Uh, I believe originally it was three months. Yes. Uh, then it was reduced uh, to three announcements. But I believe originally, centuries ago, the bands had to be uh, published in church three months. And the service, I may add, was originally at the conclusion of the church service, so that there would be the regular morning worship, and at the conclusion of the worship, the couple would come forward to be married before the whole congregation. And the purpose of uh, publishing the bands that way was, of course, uh, first of all, the contract had to be ratified in the church that had been made between the couple and then to make sure that there were no objections, that uh, there were no liabilities on the part of either, that they had not entered into any contract or uh, illicit relationship with somebody else. So it was a part of the fact that the marriage involved the community, and everyone in the congregation was present at the service. It is not by invitation. And I think there's a great deal in favor of that. What was that? Yes, right. In both churches, it had to be. Yes. that would have been the case. Yes. Oh, yes. Now, this is a very significant point. Uh, the role of the father in the marriage ceremony, and of course this is being uh, destroyed with some of these services where the father is supposed to say, her mother and I give her to you. What is the role of the father in the service? Well, up to that point, the girl is under the authority of her father. Now, this has been historically an important point. She has been strictly under the authority of her father, who has had the responsibility of her care, of her training, of her discipline. At that point, uh, the father takes the right hand of his daughter and puts it in the right hand of the bridegroom. He transfers authority of the girl from himself to the groom. So that he is saying, the authority, the care, the provision that I have provided is now your responsibility. So it is a transfer of authority and responsibility. That's its significance. So it's not just a meaningless part of the service. It's a very important part. And the uh, supervision he has exercised religiously. This is an important aspect of it. You see, nowadays, if there's any religion in the family, too often it's the mother who exercises it. She makes sure that uh, there's uh, any family worship or prayer at the table or that the children get off to Sunday school and so on and so forth. But this is not biblical. This is the significance of the father's role in part. And this is what he transfers to the groom. It is now his responsibility to exercise authority and religious leadership. And of course, in this respect, most men nowadays have been failures. Yes. 
I dealt with this matter of what welfare does to population. And I dealt in particular with the Negroes. I went back to the pre-Civil War census figures and the post-Civil War census figures. In the pre-Civil War period, there were three Negroes, both in the North and in the South. And in spite of the fact that every year the number of free Negroes increased because there were more set free. So it was not just those who were already free but new free men. They could not reproduce. Their birth rate was that low. Whereas the slave Negroes were uh, revealing a very high birth rate. Why? Because slavery is a welfare society. Now, when this uh, emancipation took place, the birth rate overall for Negroes began to drop rapidly. Very rapidly. So that by 1920, the Negroes were percentage-wise, a low, lower in ratio to the general American population than they were in 1860. In other words, they could not hold their own in a free society. They were becoming a diminishing factor. They were breeding themselves up. Of course, what has happened since the New Deal has been a skyrocketing birth rate among them because of welfare, which is a return to slavery. Slavery being a welfare society, of course. So, what was happening throughout the centuries to Western European man was that there was a progressive genetic improvement precisely because the worst element was breeding out. And now the reverse has been taking place for a couple of generations. You can get this in my book. Yes. Though we dealt with slavery earlier uh, as an inferior way of life, but slavery is a reality of history. You either have slavery to individuals, personal ownership, or state ownership. Yes, yes. Yes, there were abuses in slavery, but they've been grossly exaggerated, and by and large, the Negroes increased and flourished under slavery, and they showed it in their birth uh, records to a degree they did not flourish from 1865 to 1920 or 30 approximately. So they prospered under slavery just the way they're prospering now. But that's the weakness of slavery. It is a welfare society. Now, it's a better welfare society, I would say, than socialism and communism. But it is basically a welfare society. No, there is no blanket condemnation of slavery. It is presented as an inferior way of life, and the believer is to avoid it. You have been bought with a price, therefore be not ye the slaves of them. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. Here's another myth that's been uh, extensively propagated about the Southerners being so pro-slavery. Uh, one out of 18 Southerners owned slaves. The other 17 hated slavery. They resented it. The only reason why the South did not abolish slavery, there was only one state in the South that was genuinely pro-slavery, South Carolina. Now, that's a matter of 
extensive documentation. But the only reason the other states did not abolish slavery, even though they discussed it more than once, was what will we do with them after we free them? And had some workable solution come about to resettle them elsewhere, it would have been welcomed by the Southerners. During the Civil War, there actually was a measure that passed Congress, went to Lincoln, and he signed it to resettle all the Negroes elsewhere, uh, perhaps in some of the Caribbean islands to be purchased or somewhere else at the conclusion of the war. Now, as I say, this actually uh, passed and was signed by Lincoln and was supposed to have become a matter of law to be operative after the war, but whether it was by design or by accident, it was not sealed with the official seal, so this rendered it null and void. And before anything more could be done, Lincoln had been assassinated. Right. The, there were a sizable number of Negroes, first of all, who were free. There were a sizable number of free Negroes in the South who were slave owners. Now, this you don't get very often, but many of the Negroes who were freed in the South uh, were men who were part white. They uh, were often the illegitimate uh, son or child of the owner, and he would free them, and they often had the intelligence of their fathers and became very successful and very, very wealthy slave owners. Now, uh, this is a fact that is left out, but those one out of 18 slave owners in the South included a fair number of Negroes. Well, why don't they now start suing their own people on that? The whole thing, of course, is a fraud from start to finish. Uh, one of the interesting things I turned up this last week, uh, during the abolitionist days, one of the most eloquent women speaking against slavery was a colored woman, Sojourner Truth. And she was a very godly woman and a very remarkable woman. The story of Sojourner Truth is quite an amazing one. And she had had her children, most of them, I think she had uh, oh, about a dozen or so children, sold out from under her, and her back was scarred from whipping. And she was one of the most eloquent speakers against slavery throughout the North. But there was a joker there that they didn't call people. He had been a slave in New York. And you don't get that in the books today, like Land of the Free and other such books, when they speak of Sojourner Truth. She was a northern slave. Our time is really up, but one or two questions. Yeah. Yes, but that's very, very true. The as the war progressed and the radical Republicans became uh, more and more bent on abolishing slaves and. Uh, one of the radical Republican congressmen from Pennsylvania, William Darrah Kennedy, Kelly, made the statement, like it or not, the Negro is the coming man in America. In other words, everything that you have today in the civil rights program, they were talking about and they were going to ram it down the throats of people. In New York, a fearful riot broke out, first against the draft and second against the Negroes. And for several days, uh, uh, all New York was uh, uh, 
characterized by rioting and looting and mass murder of Negroes of, of the most brutal sort, vicious. And uh, there was this sort of thing throughout the North, throughout the war. So uh, you have, rarely get the true story of uh, events of the day. And when what you get is an anti-Southern uh, diatribe, normally. One last question, yes. The basic issue was centralism, as they called it then. We would call it uh, totalitarianism or socialism. Uh, it was federal power versus state rights. Now, there was a great deal to be criticized on both sides, but this was the basic issue, and the radical Republicans of the day were very definitely socialistic. And... Uh, the, well, it's quite a long story, but some of the ugliest uh, politics in our history until now was conducted by uh, Thaddeus Stevens, the leader of the Radical Republicans. And they came very close to destroying this country and would have after they apparently assassinated Lincoln had not Andrew Johnson, a very great president, Boston uh, at a fearful price. Uh, he, himself a southerner, was the man who stemmed the tide. Grant sold out to the radical Republicans, and but uh, Johnson before him had blocked it sufficiently that they never could get their program in, and Hayes, of course, settled it completely then. But. The one deciding vote that uh, prevented the radical Republicans from impeaching Johnson was passed by a new senator from Kansas, Senator Ross. And they hounded him for the rest of his life for that. Uh, someone someday ought to write the story of Senator Ross. And he did it purely in terms of character and a belief in his country because he saw what would happen to him. He knew they threatened him openly. Well, our time is up. <laughs>